the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Sam Maupin, dutifully engineering. Uh, today we'll have a conversation with Wendy Flint. School boards will be the subject. It's a conversation I had uh, a few weeks ago. We'll share it with you once again, Restoring America's Schools. And there's a lot more uh, to cover as well. We'll begin with some of the day's headlines. Joe Biden's orders spending half a trillion dollars to forgive student debts without a congressional appropriation finally got its day in court. The U.S. Supreme Court, despite frantic efforts by the administration to evade judicial review by repeatedly changing the rules to try to deprive anyone of standing to uh, sue in federal court. Well, the Supreme Court heard arguments today on two challenges to the edict. The first session covered Biden versus Nebraska, which is the more direct of the two challenges, because state entities are claiming losses from their role as holders and servicers of loans, whereas the second set of challengers and Department of um, of Education versus Brown are uh, people left out of uh, of the program who claim that they were injured by the failure to follow proper administrative procedures. Well, the initial signs are ominous for the administration, whose only real chance of surviving these cases is to persuade the court that none of these challengers have standing to sue. Well, as to the question of the legality of the program, the post 9-11 Heroes Act, the theoretical basis for the president's emergency order, that was 2001, by the way, gives the secretary of education the power to waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision applicable applicable to the student financial assistance program when necessary in connection with a war or other military operation or national emergency, end quote. Well, by contrast, various specific programs under the Higher Education Act statutorily uh, authorize the Secretary of Education to cancel student loans. Now, Nebraska's Solicitor General, representing the challengers, noted, among other things, not only the the uh, waive or modify is a more limited grant of power, but also that waiving or modifying provisions uh, provision rather is narrower than waiving or modifying the existence of the loans themselves. Well, under the reading, the executive branch has the power to do things such as pause payments or waive requirements for qualifying for particular programs. For example, allowing a borrower to qualify for having spent a certain number of years as a teacher without those um, having been consecutive years if um, the teaching service was interrupted by a military emergency. It can prevent people from becoming worse off during an emergency, but it doesn't have the power to wipe the original pre-emergency debt off the books to satisfy pre-emergency political arguments for doing so. Well, the Solicitor General's argument on behalf of Missouri found a pretty receptive audience with Chief Justice John Roberts, whose vote would be essential if, in fact, they're going to succeed. The president wants to win this case. Roberts began the argument by citing an opinion by Justice Antonin Scalia. 
quipping that the statutory terms modify can be read so broadly that one would say that the French Revolution modified the status of aristocrats sent to, to the guillotine. Well, the case clearly irked Roberts and his sense that the major questions a doctrine prevents presidents from ruling by executive edict and skipping procedural steps. He noted how this reminded him of the court's decision in Department of Homeland Security versus Regents of the University of California that stopped the Trump administration from undergoing an Obama-era unilateral executive edict. The fact that Biden was spending half a trillion dollars without asking Congress plainly alarmed Roberts. In terms of the separation of powers issue, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson staked out the opposite poll, Amusingly, giving some of her anti-Trump decisions as a district judge, she expressed alarm that the federal government could be brought to a uh, to a halt if states could just constantly file lawsuits to stop the executive from issuing fiats. Well, Justice Elena Kagan scoffed at all this business about executive power, arguing that Congress had given away such broad powers in the Heroes Act that it effectively let the horse out of the barn. Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh expressed the view that wave is indeed an extremely broad word, but as usual, did not totally show his cards when Missouri's lawyer noted the uh, additional problems with labeling this as just a waiver. Well, the major questions doctrine in a um, uh, canon of statutory construction, one intended to protect the power of Congress from being consumed by creative lawyering in the executive branch, It holds that courts should be particularly skeptical about reading into um, uh, the the law, statutory language and executive power to issue sweeping rules uh, on issues. um, If the issues present a major contested public policy question, Now, the solicitor general bet heavily on a highly implausible effort to argue that the major questions doctrine is supposed to limit the executive from making regulatory policy that affects individual liberty, but not to prevent that executive from making policy regarding federal benefits. Well, the assumption is that spending money can never harm anybody. It is uh, rather amazing to make such an argument in a time of high inflation and rising debt, and there was no sign sign that even the liberal justices were buying the argument. If anything, given the history of the British monarchy's battles with Parliament, The framers of the Constitution would have been more alarmed at the prospect of the executive claiming sweeping authority to spend taxpayer money without any appropriation by the legislature. Even the solicitor general conceded that the case raises a political, a politically significant issue. And she sounded as if she uh, she knew she would lose this argument and really just needed to face saving um, a way to um, not concede. Well, given the weakness of the administration's position, On the legality of the program and how unlikely it is there are more than three votes for it, the main focus of both arguments was on standing uh, to sue, whether or not those who brought suit had the uh, uh, were in a position to actually be heard. The central issue is whether Missouri could sue over um, revenues to be lost um, a a Missouri state entity that owns some of the loans in that state was at uh, at issue. Notably, the solicitor general conceded that the organization a um, uh, would have standing to sue. It would have been better if the organization had brought suit in its own name rather than the state, given that it has the statutory sue and be sued power to be allowed uh, to litigate its own rights. But instead, uh, Missouri 
stood in its place, representing a much broader interest. Well, as a result, the court was, um, as everyone agreed, on a certain amount of untrodden ground in deciding when a state can assert the rights of a state-created entity. And that was one of the questions that was a major issue today. Well, among the conservative justices, Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett seemed most skeptical of Missouri's right to represent uh, the organization that issued the loans there. But the focus of the other conservatives at argument on the merits suggests that the administration will have a hard time finding a fifth vote. Um, the sleeper case is the second one. And when we come back from the break, I'll tell you just a little bit about that before moving on. This is a pretty big case and not only determines whether or not these loans can be forgiven, but the extent of executive authority. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Talking about today's hearing in the U.S. Supreme Court in which two cases were heard. One, the state of Missouri challenging the president's loan forgiveness program, or at least the proposed program, representing um, Mohella, which is the organization under Missouri law that actually administers the loan and would be directly impacted. Part of the emphasis in the discussion earlier today in that hearing was Missouri's right to represent Mohella. Uh, the focus from many of the conservatives at uh, argument on the the merits suggested that the administration is going to have a bit of a a hard slog uh, in this um, in this effort. Well, the second case, the sleeper case, as it's being referred to, um, involves a much more convoluted theory of standing. Two student loan debtors who were not covered by the Biden program argue that it should have um, um, it should have been part of the mandatory negotiating rulemaking and notice uh, in the administrative procedure under the Higher Education Act and the Administrative Procedures Act. I know it's kind of uh, insider stuff, but this was the lesser of the, the two cases. Well, in any event, Biden's team is unlikely to get a ruling vindicating the legality of its actions or even a ruling saying that nobody can challenge them in court. The best outcome for the administration is to locate a fifth vote beyond the three liberals and possibly bear it for the view that Missouri can't represent Mohella, coupled with uh, peeling off a few of the conservatives to scale back standing to complain about administrative procedural violations. So it may be a decision on the merits. It may end up being a decision on standing on the part of those who brought suit against the administration. We'll kind of follow the story if... um, If we hear from the Supreme Court at any point in the not too distant future, which is not very likely. Well, in other news, Harvest Christian Fellowship pastor and Jesus Revolution co-author Greg Laurie says the timing of the spiritual movie is critical. As the CDC reports, one in three girls seriously contemplates suicide. We're talking about the movie Jesus Revolution. It performed miracles at the box office, received rave reviews from audiences. The new film has smashed expectations, more than doubling industry estimations and garnering rave reviews from moviegoers. It's, of course, a faith-based Lionsgate film. It was forecasted to earn about six to seven million dollars in ticket sales, but walked away from the weekend box office in third place with more than 15 million. The film earned a um, stellar six thousand two hundred and seventy two dollars per theater, according to Box Office Mojo. Well, despite uh, mixed critic reviews, the movie was awarded an A-plus cinema score and a 99% Rotten Tomatoes from the general audience. This is the fourth film from the director John Irwin, 
that's received an A-plus cinema score following American Underdog, I Can Only Imagine, and Woodlawn. Uh, John Irwin has um, has now achieved four A-plus cinema scores, more than any other filmmaker since we've been uh, compiling data. This is a quote from Cinema Score President Harold Mintz um, on the uh, subject. For a director to achieve that accomplishment once uh, is rarity, but to hit that mark four times is not only an incredible distinction, it's unprecedented. So that may tell you something about the the quality of the movie. One audience member said that while many Christian centric movies don't appeal to many Americans, um, everyone should find this film enjoyable as a piece of American history. And it certainly is that well done, says another, an audience member, an inspiring, encouraging story that was honestly and transparently told. Another viewer also left an extremely positive review writing. I loved it. I cried and laughed. I felt overwhelmed with the joy. It was clean and wholesome. According to Deadline, the film likely exceeded box office factors due to a confluence of factors, including word of mouth through church and university screenings, in addition to contemporary Christian artists. Box office estimations also appeared to underestimate the star power of Kelsey Grammer, uh, as well as Jonathan um, uh, Rowney, a popular faith-based actor who played Jesus in the Chosen franchise. Also, it's uh, been a long time since a Christian film got a wide theatrical review or release a comscore screen engine uh, pros track found that 74 percent of viewers um, bought their ticket the day of or the day before the respective showing the film was also uh, hit 97 percent positive on post track with females over 25 leading at 54 percent males at 25 at 37 percent Uh, And so on. Well, Deadline also reported that Lionsgate is already hearing about repeat business for the movie. Well, Jesus Revolution, if you're not familiar, is the story of one young hippie uh, and his quest for the in the 1970s for belonging and liberation that leads not only to peace, love and rock and roll, but that sets into motion a new counterculture crusade, a Jesus movement changing the course of history, according to the film's official synopsis. And it certainly did that. The actual Jesus movement. Well, the film focuses on Pastor Greg Laurie. Uh, this is decades earlier in his life during the 1970s as he meets a hippie street preacher uh, named Lonnie Frisbee. Well, the two eventually connect with Pastor Chuck Smith, uh, played by Grammer, Kelsey Grammer. Smith, who died in 2013, was the real life pastor of uh, Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa. He played a role in the spiritual awakening that took place in Southern California in the 60s and 70s and spread across the Pacific Coast and impacted communities all across the country as well. So kudos for the uh, for the film. Well, a Christian school in Vermont forfeited a girls basketball match and withdrew from the state championship tournament because a player on the opposing team was a transgender student athlete. Well, Mid-Vermont Christian School was set to play the Long Trail Mountain Lions. This was last Tuesday before the former decided not to compete based on concerns for players' safety and fairness. We withdrew, this is a quote, we withdrew from the tournament because we believe playing against an opponent with a biological male jeopardizes the fairness of the game and the safety of of our players. Allowing biological males to participate in women's sports sets a bad precedent for the future of women's sports in general. That's a quote from a senior administrator at the school in a statement. Well, state law permits transgender females, which means male, to play in girls sporting leagues and prohibits discrimination based upon gender identity. 
Transgender and gender nonconforming students are to be provided the same opportunities to participate in physical education as are all other students. Now, no one has a gripe there, but it does require participation in competitive athletic activities and sports will be resolved on a case-to-case basis based on uh, the individual's decision to represent him or herself as the biological sex or the opposite gender. Vermont's policy on transgender athletes has led to several controversies in recent months. In October of last year, the middle school girls soccer coach from Randolph Union High School was suspended after a report um, that uh, the coach misgendered a trans student while defending his daughter, who was uncomfortable with an individual being in the girls' locker room. That same month, administrators at the school banned members of the girls' volleyball team after objecting to sharing it with a biological male student. I feel like the uh, I feel like for stating my opinion that I don't want a biological man changing with that I should not have um, harassment charges or bullying charges. They should all be dropped, one concerned student uh, told the media. I have received calls from schools asking for best practices and how to go forward knowing they're going to play a team with a transgender female on it as well. That's a quote from Lauren Thomas, the assistant executive director, speaking to a local paper. We just supported our stance and our best practices through our inclusivity statement. Well, the Mountain Lions competed, uh, or rather completed their 20th uh, game schedule without any issues up until this point, where one school, one Christian girls' school, took a stand. And this is going to be a dilemma that many schools Christian and otherwise will face in the future as the controversy over whether or not um, males should be permitted to compete against females, however they identify, and in particular, whether or not they should be permitted in private spaces like locker rooms and in showers. This is the brave new world we find ourselves in today. Washington state teacher says the uh, said the quiet part out loud on parental rights and education. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I'll tell you about this Washington state teacher who says parents really can't be trusted with their own children. That and more when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a high school teacher in Washington state suggested that schools should hide information about children from their parents because kids, and I'm quoting, are not safe in this nation from the Christo fascist parents. Kelly Love, who appears in... Um, Auburn School District Directory as Karen Love is a teacher at Auburn High School. Uh, She made the claim Thursday on Twitter. Well, she had responded to a tweet that in turn was a reply to Nicole Neely, founder and president of Parents Defending Education. It's impossible for parents to protect their children and make informed decisions about their welfare when schools are withholding critical information, she tweeted. It's time this condescending behavior by school districts ends, end quote. Well, a Twitter user who claims to be a former teacher and retired principal drew attention to the declaration, warning parents to check your school district's policy regarding keeping information about your child secret from you. Schools should not have a right to keep information about your child from you unless abuse by you is suspected. There, I said it, and I mean it, end quote. I cannot disagree with this more. Love, the... Other teacher responded, so many students are not safe in this nation from their Christo fascist parents and our guidelines and laws haven't caught up with this. She went on to say, well, when uh, 
efforts to reach out on Twitter to ask Love to define Christo fascist. The teacher responded by blocking the account. She didn't respond to a follow up email requesting comment. She runs a blog and uh, includes a YouTube link in her Twitter bio, although the channel appears to be defunct. Well, the Auburn School District also didn't respond to her request for comment. Well, Neely told the Daily Signal that uh, Love's uh, public um, persona on Twitter illustrates why parents have lost their confidence and trust in American education. We are a nation of laws and families are guaranteed due process rights under the U.S. Constitution, which means that educators like Ms. Love aren't simply able to use their discretion to decide whether a family is safe or not, Neely said. Teachers like this are one of the many reasons that parents have lost trust in American education system. And the sooner that schools begin to rid themselves of activists like this, the better, end quote. Well, Ian Pryor, who's executive director of Fight for Schools and the senior advisor at America's First Legal, said that the uh, that Love's comments should serve as a wake up call to parents. On one hand, it's utterly it's utterly right thinking that uh, a teacher would hold the views that she is a better judge of children than their own parents and then publicly say so on Twitter. On the other hand, having people in positions of authority say the quiet part out loud gives parents the opportunity to understand what's actually happening at their schools and take appropriate action. Well, parental rights in education has become a a political flashpoint in recent years. After remote learning during the COVID-19 pandemic opened up classrooms to parents, many of whom didn't like what their children were learning. Issues like gender ideology, critical race theory, a lens that encourages students to interpret America as Systematically racist at every point and sexually explicit books have led parents to take an increasingly active role in policing education, especially as students math and reading scores decreased during the pandemic. Well, some um, most notably uh, Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe, a Democrat who lost in 2021 in his bid uh, to become the um, uh, to have a second term as governor, have argued that teachers rather than parents should determine what children learn because they are professionals. That doesn't address the problem of activism in the classroom, however. Meanwhile, Republicans like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis have signed laws limiting gender, sexual and divisive uh, lessons in class uh, partially to return instruction to a focus on the basics of reading, writing and arithmetic. Well, gender activists have argued that children who claim to identify as the gender opposite their biological sex are likely to commit suicide if others don't affirm this transgender identity. And many parents familiar with the changing fads of childhood distrust these declarations of identity and they oppose the rush to put children on a path of life altering medications and irreversible surgeries. We'll talk a little bit more about that later in the program. California Governor uh, Gavin Newsom also a Democrat, last fall signed a law turning California into a sanctuary state for gender-affirming care. The measure gives California courts the ability to award custody of a child if someone removes that child from parents in another state to obtain such care over the parents' disagreement. So you might assume, I live in Washington, I live in in Oregon, Uh, if that child is removed from you and taken to California, there's now been given authority to move forward with whatever, whatever care the adults and the immature child who doesn't know what they might in fact want in the future may be subject to very sobering. Yesterday, the Senate housing committee and the state Capitol held a hearing on Senate bill 603, which would provide homeless and low income Oregonians free $1,000 payments for a year 
uh, to use in whatever way they wish. This is in the Oregon legislature. Multnomah County is handed out to the homeless free $500 debit cards, 20,000 free tents, while Portland has doled out $3 million in free cash-loaded debit cards for um, uh, Internet as well as their own $500 cash-loaded debit cards, yet homeless uh, homelessness increased by 30%. Now, it seems logical to me that if you're going to get more stuff that you're less likely uh, although I suppose the, the goal was to incentivize people to move forward and away from being houseless. Well, during COVID, unemployment benefits paid people more to not work than to actually work. And that created the modern day labor shortage crisis, which has severely hurt every single industry in America. Well, most states saw the damage this was creating and seized the extension. Oregon didn't. And our state poverty only grew. Lawmakers should... Uh, Stop creating poverty, start lifting people out of poverty and um, reconsider supporting Senate Bill 603 that simply, again, underwrites a lifestyle that is not healthy for the individual or the broader community either. Meanwhile, a campaign to have rural eastern Oregon effectively secede from the blue state and join more conservative Idaho is gaining steam as leaders from both states express support for relocating the border between the two states. Former Oregon House Speaker Mark Simmons penned an op-ed in the Idaho Statesman, a daily newspaper, over the weekend to explain why he supports the so-called Greater Idaho Movement that seeks to incorporate about 13 Oregon counties or 63% of the state's land mass and 9% of its population within Idaho's borders. Idaho would have the satisfaction of freeing rural conservative communities from progressive blue state law, wrote Simmons. We are dismayed by the manner in which Oregon um, government has marginalized our values and villainized our resource-based livelihoods. This is why our counties voted 75% Republican last year. And by the way, Idaho voted only 67% Republican in the state. Simmons described how Oregon's stores are selling drugs near Idaho communities and hurting the quality of life in the area, explaining that moving the state line would force drug shops away from most of Idaho's population and help eastern Oregonians. These counties would help maintain rural values in the Idaho legislature, values of faith, family, and self-reliance, he argued. All of Eastern Oregon voted against marijuana legalization and the decriminalization of hard drugs. And yet, in Oregon, that's the law. His op-ed came after Idaho's House of Representatives earlier this month. They passed a resolution not to move the Idaho-Oregon border, but rather to call for formal talks between the state legislatures about relocating the boundary line uh, in that manner. It's not clear if the bill is going to pass the Idaho Senate, but the chamber is, like the state's uh, house, dominated by Republicans. Matt McCraw, who's a spokesperson for the Greater Idaho Group, has said he's confident the measure will pass, expressing optimism about the movement's goals and skepticism from many people. Uh, we have, um, or rather, when you have a new idea, there's always a lot of people that roll their eyes. They think it's silly. They dismiss it. He spoke to um, KGW, which is an NBC affiliate here. When we started this two years ago, I would get a lot of uh, like, this will never happen. Why are you wasting your time? End quote. Well, others have expressed doubt, including some lawmakers who voted for the measure approving uh, talks. The reality is I don't believe this will ever happen, says one Idaho Republican. Representative uh, Colin Nash, a Democrat, jokingly asked for permission to amend the proposal 
to also um, add all of Montana to Idaho, quipping that doing so could uh, could be enough to allow Idaho to pick up a Democrat seat in Congress. Well, moving the Idaho-Oregon border would require the approval of both state legislatures as well as U.S. Congress. And despite the support of Idaho lawmakers, the idea may face greater resi- resistance rather in the Democrat-controlled Oregon legislature for reasons that don't need to be explained. Oregon State Senate um, Senator Dennis uh, Lenticum, a Republican, has filed a similar proposal to begin talks with Idaho, but the proposal is unlikely to make it to, out of committee. Still, proponents of Greater Idaho note that 11 counties in eastern Oregon have voted for ballot measures to explore the uh, the move, and that, according to some polling, Idahoans would welcome uh, the addition and the movement of the state boundary. In Oregon, meanwhile, polling has uh, shown uh, an equal number of voters support um, and oppose the idea with about one fifth of the population undecided. It's all rather interesting. A greater Idaho and a lesser Oregon would be as uh, Idaho, by the way, would be as big as Montana and twice the population with the new land increasing the state's population by about 21 percent. We'll continue to follow that very slow moving story. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, blue state breakup, dim-led Oregon could soon shrink as conservative counties are pushing to part ways in Oregon. Absolutely not acceptable. A man was busted trying to board a plane with handguns, an AR-15, a taser, and a fake U.S. Marshals badge. More than 800 firearms have been intercepted at airport checkpoints so far this year. It's absolutely not acceptable for firearms to be anywhere near checkpoints, as the TSA spokesperson Carter Langston in a statement. There is a legally permissible way to bring firearms in checked bags, but you have to be legally able to carry a firearm in your jurisdiction, declare it with the airline and pack it properly in a hard-sided and locked case. Well, the TSA rather is set to record in 2022 by intercepting more than 6,500 firearms at airport checkpoints in the U.S. The firearms were discovered in 262 airports, with 88% of them being loaded. No further hope. Actor Tom Sizemore's doctors have informed his family that there's no further hope and have recommended end-of-life decision after the actor suffered a brain aneurysm that occurred as a result of a stroke last week in Los Angeles. The Black Hawk Down star has remained in a coma and in intensive care after collapsing at home on the 18th of February. In a whale of a problem, a Biden administration scientist apparently warned about the impact of offshore wind Months ago, and Governor DeSantis issued a warning about ESG in his new book, saying we deserve to know GOP senators are pushing a bill requiring President Biden to declassify all U.S. intelligence connected to the Wuhan lab and COVID's origins. Enjoying the show, Gretchen Whitmer is being criticized for an apparent night out while Michigan was hit with severe winter weather and power loss. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, a Republican out of Georgia, said that Monday night, She was attacked by an insane woman at a restaurant and yelled at by the woman's son over her political stances. The congresswoman claims the incident was sparked by a difference of political opinions and that the mother of and son duo had no respect for opposing viewpoints. They had no respect for the restaurant or the staff or other people dining or people like me who simply have different political views. 
Green wrote in a tweet, they're self-righteous, insane, and completely out of control. Gotta stop this. Whoopi Goldberg slams re-editing books to avoid offending modern sensibilities and modern audiences. China's response to the Energy Department endorsement of the lab leak theory, stop defaming China. Well, on Monday, China accused the United States of politicizing the COVID-19 pandemic, dismissing the Energy Department's conclusion that the coronavirus likely arose from an unintended laboratory leak. COVID tracing is a scientific issue that should not be politicized, Mao Ning, a Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson, said in response to the finding, according to the New York Times. Ning also called on the United States to stop defaming China by raising the lab leak theory. State, uh, rather, Senate Republicans reintroduced a bill providing transparency into COVID's origin. GOP Senators Josh Hawley and Mike Braun, they've reintroduced a bill that would require the administration to declassify all intelligence related to the Wuhan Institute of Virology and possible links to the origins of the COVID-19 virus in light of the weekend report from the Department of Energy that concluded the coronavirus pandemic likely stemmed from a lab leak. A similar version of the senator's bill, the COVID-19 Origin Act of 2021, passed the Senate unanimously in May of 2021. Governor DeSantis signed a bill ending Disney's special district privileges, and it will cost them a pretty penny. On Monday, he signed a bill that will enable the state of Florida to take control of the Disney World special district. Florida's battle with Disney began when the company publicly denounced the parental rights and education bill prohibited the teaching of sexual orientation and gender identity to kindergarten through third grade in public schools. Disney declared the legislation should never have passed and should never have been signed into law. The company went on to suspend political donations in Florida in an act of protest against the legislation. In a move uh, political observers viewed as retaliation for Disney's views of the don't say gay measure, which didn't properly characterize the content, Florida's lawmakers this month passed a bill which DeSantis signed into law that authorizes the governor to appoint five supervisors to oversee traditional municipal services like fire protection, public utilities, waste collection and road maintenance in the region where Disney World operates. The quasi-government entity also has the authority to raise revenue to pay outstanding debt and cover the cost of said services. The U.S. has imposed sanctions on Chinese companies assisting Russia against Ukraine. And the House Oversight Committee has accused the Treasury Department of obstructing the Hunter Biden investigation. Rather, House Oversight Committee James Comer accused the Biden administration of operating a bad faith and obstructing his committee's investigation into the Biden family's finances. Comer said in a letter to the Treasury Department revealed on Monday that the department has been suspiciously slow to respond to committee's requests for suspicious activity reports filed over deals members of the uh, president's family made with foreign businessmen. The Treasury Department is obstructing our investigation into the business schemes. We are done with excuses. We'll see what happens next. Well, the population of Americans identifying as LGBTQIA has doubled in the last 10 years. The share of American population identifying uh, has doubled over the past decade as Gen Z is more likely than older Americans to identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender or something other than heterosexual. In new Gallup data, the share of Americans who identify as LGBT reached a record 7.2% in 2022 after hitting 7.1% in 21, up 5.6% from the previous year. 
Given the large disparities in the um, identification between younger and older generations of Americans, the proportion of all Americans who identify as LGBT can be expected to grow in the future as younger generations will constitute a larger share of the total U.S. adult population. The San Francisco Reparations Committee neglected to use math. The Washington Post reported that tasked with calculating how much San Francisco should pay its black residents for decades of discrimination, a government-appointed panel didn't develop a mathematical formula. Instead, over the past year and a half, its 15 members have been studying the city's history. San Francisco's $5 million proposal, magnitudes larger than amounts uh, being discussed in other communities, has drawn intense backlash from conservatives who lambaste the ideas financially ruinous for the city with an annual budget of $14 billion that's still recovering economically from the pandemic. The proposal doesn't explain who would qualify, but if uh, even a fraction of the city's 50,000 black residents met the criteria, it would consume a huge amount of the city's annual budget. Hot Air reports, I did my best to come up with a ballpark estimate, which was about 30,000 people, which meant a lump sum payment of $150 billion, more than 10 times the city's annual budget. Saudi Arabia has committed $400 million to Ukraine. The head of the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's office announced on Sunday that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia will provide $400 million in aid to Ukraine, including $300 million in oil products plus $100 million in humanitarian assistance. The um, Saudi foreign minister uh, signed documents pledging the uh, aid during his visit to Kiev over the weekend. It was the first visit paid by, to Ukraine by a Saudi foreign minister since the two countries established formal, uh, formal diplomatic relations in 1993. The trip comes after Saudi Arabia was accused by the U.S. of siding with Russia in its year-old invasion of Ukraine through its oil policies. Saudi Arabia steers the OPEC plus producers group with Moscow, and Washington was um, has said its production cuts have been detrimental to the global economy. Saudi Arabia rejects this, saying its policies are aimed at balancing global oil markets and is not political. El Salvador cracked down on gang violence when Salvadoran President uh, Bukele uh, came to power in 2019. The nation's homicide rate had already been declining from its shocking high in 2015, 103 murders per 100,000 population, by far the worst on earth. Well, beginning last March, he launched a massive crackdown on gangs, more than doubling the tiny nation's prison population in the process. The result, the homicide rate in El Salvador has plunged to new lows. Murders last year, 496, were down 57% from the year prior to a rate of 7.8% per 100,000. Washington, D.C.'s rate of 28.5 murders per 100,000 is far worse. This is how you handle criminal gangs like MS-13, much better than having them end up in the southern, at our southern border. Asbury University has inspired schools to host their own spiritual revivals. Is that what you do? Do you host your own spiritual revival? Uh, while I'm mentioning it, I should uh, say that we'll be talking with Jason Williams tomorrow. He witnessed the, uh, by the revival in Asbury. He'll give his impressions. And we'll talk with Pastor Greg uh, Allen, Pastor of Bethany Bible Church. And what does a revival actually mean? What is an awakening? Uh, is there uh, and should there be an expectation of things uh, to follow that reflect what what happened or is it more of a personal um, revival we'll talk more about that tomorrow 
But just weeks after an outpouring began at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky, several other schools across the U.S. have reported similar events in several videos posted on Facebook. Corpus Christi, Texas-based New Life Church lead pastor Michael uh, Fulner, he showed people getting baptized in a public fountain at Texas A&M and at Galveston. Students at LSU gathered um, to pray and ask God to move on their campus. I've heard of countless other campuses hosting similar events this week. This is not just hype. God wants this generation back, and they're turning back to him heart and soul. So writes Paul Worcester. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll hear from... Wendy Flint, Dr. Flint, uh, is the author of School Boards, A Call to Action, Restoring America's Schools. That's coming up later in this program. Well, the Supreme Court of the United States heard oral arguments on two student loan cancellation cases today. Uh, The the court heard um, the president's student loan cancellation program and whether or not the two um, entities have standing in a move nearly identical to Barack Obama's DACA gambit. Last year, Biden declared he didn't have the authority to cancel student loan debt, only to later entirely reverse course and sign an executive order doing exactly that. Well, the rationale between the president's about face was blatantly political, coming mere weeks ahead of the midterm elections. Thankfully, after lawsuits against the uh, program, both the Eighth and Fifth Circuit Courts put a hold on the program due to serious constitutional issues, and the Supreme Court agreed to expedite the cases. Well, the larger issue at play is a question over the balance of power. If Biden wins, it's going to represent a significant expansion of the power of the executive over and against Congress's power of the purse. Now, interestingly, the Congress could have, on several occasions, decided to suspend student loans. It didn't have to be the executive to do that if this was a priority, as many are now squawking about uh, this effort to uh, apply the Constitution to the situation. But we'll see what the court ultimately says on the issue of the merits as well as standing. Team Biden admitted the 9,000 unused oil permits claim is bogus. One of the president and his administration's favorite talking points used to deflect criticism of his anti-fossil fuel agenda was the claim that energy companies are sitting on 9,000 unused drilling permits. Well, his way of handling the uh, soaring gas prices, his policy's cause, was to blame the oil companies, labeling them as greedy liars. Well, it turns out the real um, untruth was um, the number that was given by the uh, president, never challenged by the media. Suddenly and quietly, the Bureau of Land Management has revised the current number of approved applications for permits to drill down to less than 6,700, which is still a pretty big number. BLM explained that this number has been updated to account for a reporting discrepancy resulting from a transition to a new database. In Governor DeSantis' world on Monday, Florida Governor DeSantis followed through on his promise to hold Disney accountable for siding with uh, uh, groomers fomenting woke politics by falsely framing the Parental Rights and Education Act as a don't say gay bill. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot is once again being ripped for uh, playing both the race card and the gender cards ahead of uh, today's elections. And the Department of Transportation has opened an internal investigation into Pete Buttigieg's personal travel. Senator Manchin put the GOP on the brink of a major win over Democrats by opposing the D.C. crime law. And the Biden Pentagon has ordered military chaplains to bless putting male soldiers in female showers and bedrooms.
The Defense Department tells military personnel to stop jumping from planes with U.S. flags in tow. And men pretending to be women will be included in the Smithsonian's New American Women's History Museum. A massive fentanyl shipment enough to kill 50 million people was seized in California again. China is full steam ahead with uh, new coal plants. The U.S. um, slipped to its worst ever score in the 2023 Index of Economic Freedom. Well, on this day in history, 1844, a 12-inch gun aboard the USS Princeton explodes as the ship is sailing up the, the Potomac River, killing Secretary of State Abel Upshur, Navy Secretary Thomas Gilmer, and several others. 1849, the California Gold Rush begins in earnest as regular steamship service starts bringing gold seekers to San Francisco. 1911, President William Howard Taft nominates William H. Lewis to be the first black assistant attorney general of the United States. 1917, the Associated Press reports that the United States obtained a diplomatic communication sent by German Foreign Minister Arthur Zimmerman to a German official in Mexico proposing a German alliance with Mexico and Japan should the U.S. enter World War I. Outrage over the telegram would help propel America into that conflict. 1942, the heavy cruiser USS Houston and the Australian light cruiser HMAS Perth are attacked by Japanese forces during World War II, the Battle of Sunda Strait. 1953, scientists James D. Watson and Francis H. C. Crick they announced they have discovered the double helix structure of DNA. On this day in history, 1993, the gun battle erupts at a religious compound near Waco, Texas, when Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms agents try to arrest Branch Davidian leader David Koresh on weapons charges. Four agents and six Davidians are killed as a 51-day standoff begins. 1995, Denver International Airport opens after 16 months of delays and $3.2 billion in budget overruns. 2013, Benedict XVI becomes the first pope in 600 years to resign, ending an eight-year pontificate. Um, Benedict would uh, be succeeded the following month by Pope Francis. Also in 2013, Bradley Manning, the Army private arrested in the biggest leak of classified information in U.S. history, pleads guilty at Fort Meade, Maryland, to 10 charges of involving illegal possession of or distribution of classified materials. Manning, who later adopts a female identity, Chelsea Manning, would be sentenced to up to 35 years in prison after being convicted of additional charges in a court-martial. His sentence would be commuted in 2017 by then-President Barack Obama. 2014, delivering a blunt warning to Moscow, President Obama expresses deep concern over reported military activity inside Ukraine by Russia and warns there will be costs for any intervention. Now in 2023, well, enough said. 2018, Walmart announces that it would no longer sell firearms and ammunition to people younger than 21 and would remove items resembling assault-style rifles from its website. Dick's Sporting Goods also says it would stop selling assault-style rifles and ban the sale of all guns to anyone under 21. And finally, on this day in uh, 2018, political leaders pay tribute to the Reverend Billy Graham, as his casket rests in the U.S. Capitol Rotunda. Well, the Ukraine mess is daily looking more like the Spanish Civil War in 1936 to 1939. So writes Victor Davis Hansen, a meat grinder that took 500,000 lives. 
That three-year conflict became a savage proxy war and prelude for the belligerence of World War II. Now, a year after Russia's invasion, the Ukraine battlefield is proving to be a similar laboratory. New lethal weaponry and tactics are introduced, modified, and always improved, from drones to guided missiles to Internet-fed artillery. Likewise, a similar pre-global war lineup of the eventual adversaries is emerging in preview of the much larger, much scarier war to come. The first mission of Ukraine, the aggrieved victim of the preemptory Russian attack, was simple survival. But now, the Ukraine has been armed to the teeth and its soldiers proved far more capable and heroic than Vladimir Putin's once-feared Russia Kiev now seeks to push back the Russians to their 2014 Ukrainian-acquired borders. Well, there's more to that. You can read the article, Something Worse Likely After the Ukraine War, but I'll revisit this tomorrow as well. Um, Just looking ahead, looking back, and anticipating what's to come, and whether or not his assessment is correct, that this is looking more like the pre-Civil War, Spanish Civil War from 36 to 39, which was a prelude, to World War One and the belligerence in uh, World War Two, rather the belligerence in that conflict. Up next, Dr. Wendy Flint, school boards, the call to action, restoring America's schools. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest ran for school board as a conservative Christian in nineteen eighty five. She won with a very strategic campaign and the favor of God, but not without persecution against her and her family. And it was intense. Well, in 1988, she wrote the book School Boards, A Call to Action. It's the first edition. She traveled 44 states giving school board workshops and speaking in churches. It's estimated that some 2000 parents and citizens won their elections as a result. And in this second edition, we'll be talking about in just a moment, she teaches parents the importance of and power of doing spiritual warfare in their school districts. One of the thing, the things that the isolation following the pandemic did was it gave parents an opportunity to see what's actually going on in classrooms, and they have uh, become much more activist about uh, what they see. She's updated her school board's uh, book, A Call to Action, written from a Christian mother's perspective. Um, she overcame the fear and, and provides some equipping uh, with tools and tactics needed for an effective campaign for those who would like to uh, to step into that calling. Well, Dr. Wendy Flint joins us now to talk about this great resource I hope you'll um, plan to put in your hands. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Georgine. I'm so happy to connect with you. I've been a professor for years. Well, thank you. You are a professor at George Fox, and you are an Oregonian now, but you originally served as president of the board in Evergreen School District in Washington. Um, and uh, your experience is included in this second edition of the book, School Boards, A Call to Action. Yes. Um, I raised our children. My husband and I raised our children. Uh, we were over there for about 26 years involved in that district and very much involved in the schools. Uh, and uh, now we're over in Sherwood, Oregon. One of the things I've appreciated is watching parents um, wake up to what's happening in their school districts, in their schools, and confronting school boards with, um, this is not what we signed up for. This is not what our tax dollars were intended for. And they're confronting school districts, and there's quite a bit of contention. Can you tell us a little bit about what the situation was like in 85 when you, as a, a conservative, decided, I'm going to step into um, a campaign and seek a role in a school board? 
Well, what's interesting is as a young mother, I don't think I politically had any definition of myself. Um, I was just involved in schools and cared about my kids mm-hmm. and, and had, you know, moral values. So when I chose to run, um, it was because of concern, uh, you know, for the curriculum, for what my children were being exposed to, and for the, because of the arrogance of the school board that was not listening to the parents. After I made that decision to run with a support of parents, I discovered that the press um, back then, be the media today, um, and the teachers' union, when they found out I had conservative point of view and that I was a Christian, um, the attack became very intense. I had no idea the hatred um, toward conservatives and Christians. And so there was a lot of exaggeration, mm-hmm. false accusations, and persecution. It wasn't easy, but God was with me. Well, let, let me ask you about that, because I think for a lot of parents, they would have to be called by God himself before they would enter into that kind of conflict. For you, what, what compelled you? Was there a specific call? Was it driven by your concern and a sense of responsibility for your children, the school district, and your, and your community? The, I think the call came when the Lord spoke to my heart and said, I've called you to leadership. And I was very surprised because I was a young mom and I somehow didn't visualize that, but he said, there's a calling on your life to leadership. And then when I was invited to do this, and I, uh, would you run? And I prayed with my husband. Um, you know, we, we were just weighing it back and forth. Was I really qualified? Should I do this? And amazingly, through prayer, people started calling me on the phone or sending me messages. Even one mother knocked on my door and said, the Lord said, that, uh, come talk to you and encourage you. Uh, another group said we've been praying for years for God to send someone to run for this school board, and we think you're the one. So he sent a lot of messages. I had doubts and fears, but he sent a lot of confirming messages and scriptures. I've called you to do this, and I'm going to be with you. I want you to do this. Now, some people are just strong patriots, angry, um, and they are determined uh, to win I wasn't one of those um, strong people at the time. I I needed to lean entirely on the Lord. Yeah, I think a a lot of people are frustrated by what they're seeing and want to do something that's effective. A lot of people feel that they're called, but they may question whether or not they're qualified. How do you address that? Do you have to have a certain set of credentials before you should consider stepping into and uh, holding accountable the decision makers in uh, public education across the states of Oregon and, and Washington? There absolutely is no requirement except in some states, basic, you know, you need to read and write. There's no educational requirements, no experience. It has been set up uh, to be run by local citizens Mm -hmm. and parents. It never was intended for educated professionals, even though a lot of educational professionals do run for school board. It was set up to be a local uh, decision-making body where parents would have a voice. It was, you know, called common law in the original days, and parents were very much involved. So there are no real qualifications, but, you know, basically I stud- went to the library and started looking at education law. Um, I got a book of resolutions from the district and started reading what the re- resolutions were. Um, and I just, you know, started uh, studying and talking to people of what it would take to make decisions on the board. Once you're on the board, you get all the materials, you get all the training, um, you go to workshops, you work with your colleagues. And so you pick it up pretty quickly 
the role and responsibility is. And once you're elected, then you you basically have the responsibility of reviewing um, all the materials or budgets and curriculum that come to you um, and vote on that. So a majority controlled board uh, has the majority decision of what's going to be in that district, especially when it is regard to academics and curriculum. In the introduction of your book, School Boards, A Call to Action, you quote the what's now become the infamous statement by Virginia Governor at the time, Virginia Governor McAuliffe, who uh, who made the point that, you know, parents really um, have no role to play when it comes to education. I think there's a, a, a back and forth as to what is the role of parents, what's the role of educators. And in the local um, school districts, uh, is it true that parents do have authority? Is it true that parents should pursue Input And let me ask you to, because you've been in that arena, let me ask you to comment on Governor McCullough's uh, statement during his debate in Alexandria, saying, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Your thoughts on the role of parents in education in general and the role of school boards in helping to shape the direction that education goes? Really good question. I'm glad you asked it. It infuriates me when they say that. And, of course, they're saying that. Uh, with the point of view is if we could go into a classroom and tell people what to teach. Of course, teachers are trained, educated. My daughter has been a teacher for over 20 years um, in the public school system, and um, I would never tell her how to teach her subjects, but I can evaluate um, the, whether the content as a board member is truly reflecting the history of our nation, um, is is it, uh, what are the reading scores of our students? Do we need to look at the curriculum um, to make the scores go up? You know, we have, a, we are responsible according to law when we're on a school board to be accountable not only for the quality of the curriculum, it says that in the law, but we're accountable uh, to the values and morals that the community is asking for uh, when they come uh, and talk to us. So, I, when, what we're saying is parents have a right to be concerned about what is being taught their children when they see it at home or online during COVID, and they have a right to go through the process of instructional committees where there's protests or go to the board, appeal to the board, uh, to go single or in groups um, and present their concerns, and the school board has the choice whether to listen or not. And when they don't listen to the local input of parents who do have a right to evaluate their children's uh, education and materials and ensure its quality, um, the board doesn't respond, then the only solution is to replace the board members. And, And that's not that easy, but if you get organized, it can be done and get established for years to come. So it, it isn't just directly telling the teacher what to teach. We have, uh, we pay the taxes. Those are our children. We're entrusting them to those teachers and those administrators. And the law allows us to have input into that. And, and there's a lot of laws stated in my book, by the way, where there's been yes. court cases and the parents win. Yes, yes. Once again, we're talking about school boards, a call to action written by my guest, Wendy Flint. Uh, Dr. Flint is a professor at uh, George Fox University. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm talking with Dr. Wendy Flint. She's an author and speaker, has over 35 years experience in the business sector, K-12 through and higher education. She's a former president of the board of in Evergreen School District in Washington. Dr. Flint authored the first edition of School Boards, A Call to Action in 1988, and traveled to 44 states from 88 to 90, giving school board election workshops and making appearances on radio and television stations. Over 2,000 citizens have have won their elections with Dr. Flint's book and her training. That book is now updated and available for you in your school district or perhaps for you as an individual. If you sense a calling of God to run for the school board or if you are um, outraged and dissatisfied with what's happening and you're considering making such a move, this is a great, um, great resource. How would you describe um, the book School Boards, A Call to Action? Is it a workbook? Is it a, a campaign manual? How would you describe it? I definitely call it a training manual. Uh, it gives you every uh, detail you need to organize a campaign uh, that has worked over and over again, the basic skills for that, because um, some people don't know you know, what they should do. It's interesting in some of the um, elections, they have them off season, like not during November. It might be in April or mm-hmm. May. The turnout can be very low. So your ability to win a school board election with a mailing, with phone calls, with getting out the vote, your ability to win and be successful is very, very high. What's different about this book this time is that when I wrote the first edition and I was on the road training from state to state, um, it was mostly technical um, about how the questions to ask the superintendent, um, how you can influence legislation and how to run your campaign. But what it didn't have was the spiritual warfare that uh, my campaign manager and I did during this campaign and just really leaning on the Lord, not only during the campaign, but after making decisions on the board and praying for the children of the district. And so my personal testimony of what I went through, my children went through, the victories that God gave us wasn't in the first book. But this time, you know, I'm 73 years old. I have six grandchildren in college. Um, and, um, you know, the Lord called me to rewrite the book again. And this time I wanted to make sure I left the message uh, to parents who were doing this as Christians, that they understood the major difference that prayer uh, can do in the schools, especially once you get into that leadership position. We often think about uh, legislators, city council member, county councilmen, people <clears throat> who are called to uh, our nation's capital. How significant is the school board in shaping, first of all, the, the young people who go through our public education system? But how significant is a position on the school board to impacting and influencing the direction of our communities? Well, there's so much legislation, resolutions that are written in the district level and then resolutions that are written at the state level. So when you're a board member, these resolutions steer the the district in the direction um, that you want to go. And we wrote a religious policy as soon as uh, we had a majority controlled board in the state of Washington required us to write one. And I was amazed at the opposition that came into the boardroom that from the ACLU and others that they didn't want children to even be allowed to pray over their food at the table in the cafeteria and that it would take away the rights of the other children sitting at the table. And and so the freedom of our children depends on these resolutions uh, that we write and the opposition 
um, you know, has very destructive ideas um, for our schools. And then once you're on the school board, you go to a legislative meeting and you vote on resolution that goes to the legislature that says the school board association in this state is telling you legislators, this is what we want in schools. And it's very powerful lobbying group. And so as we increase in our numbers for wanting these values in schools, we start to influence the local um, association in our state. And I recall many times at many meetings where they have proposed to remove the American flag from the classrooms in America, and it never ends. They always want that flag out, and they want a United Nations flag or some education flag put in instead. And if it wasn't for the voice of board members stopping that, we wouldn't be seeing the American flag in the schools right now. They'd be telling legislators to remove that law and take that out. And then you actually eventually get to lobby at the federal level, which I got to do. And I can remember sitting, um, you know, in presenting to a congressman or woman um, my points of view, uh, what I wanted for schools. And I could be concerned about national legislation um, and sharing with them. And they loved having local board members Mm -hmm. come and talk to them. They would rather hear us than a special interest group. Yeah, yeah. Now, if I feel that I am called to serve on a a local school board or I'm considering that possibility, where do I begin? The first thing you would do is find out what district you're in and if that board seat is coming up for election. Um, And you can go to your election board uh, to look that up. Uh, Go, you know, I think the Uh, If you're a conservative, the Republican Party has people working on this, so they may have that information for you also um, in your area. Uh, Unfortunately, I've been getting emails from people that are trying to go to the superintendent or the district office to get this information, and they're being blocked, or they're being told, no, you don't live in that district, and they did. They're trying to control who gets uh, elected, who even runs. So you definitely need to push beyond just talking to the district, unless you're in a small rural area where they may be a little bit more friendly. Um, And do go to your election board and do um, go to your uh, Republican Party. Even though this is a nonpartisan seat, you want to go to people that are going to support you if you're a conservative. Um, And they will help give you the information of the seats that are coming up because you don't want to run against somebody that's already conservative on the board. Mm -hmm. Um, So you want to find out what seats are open, what are coming up, um, and then start to get some advice from people that are involved in elections uh, locally. I think for a lot of people who live in Oregon, who live in the Portland area, for example, that is extremely liberal. They might just assume it's not possible for me to successfully run for and earn a seat on the board. What do you say to those who um, are skeptical about the opportunity they might have if they do choose to run in uh, the more liberal parts of Oregon or for that matter, Washington? Right. Um, So I would say that it is the moderates that turn the vote and most moderate people, when they see the actual, um, extremism or or sexually explicit curriculum and things that are being forced on the children and you can get them educated, they will vote for you. They they just want decency as much as anyone else. They don't have an agenda. So I think the majority of citizens and parents don't have an agenda. When it comes to children in schools, they all agree. And that's what I found how I won my race is once we got the word out, once the truth got out, 
you know, there were people from all different groups uh, that were voting for us because it's, it's children and schools that we're talking about. So I just went to a meeting recently where uh, five districts were represented and they wanted a workshop and some parents had organized this. And there were several candidates from, from Beaverton, Hillsboro, Candy, Clackamas. I mean, they were from all over and they said, I'm running and I just need help and show me what to do. And here was a group of parents organizing this workshop. And there were some board members there that were conservative already on the board. And they were looking for people to run so their numbers could increase and they could make a difference. Um, so I say, do it. You'll run. The first time, if you lose, don't worry about it. Your name will get out there. Run again. Once you make a commitment and you have a calling, um, go for it. I think the tide is turning in America. I think people are fed up. And I think that the number of people on our side is greater. We just have to get the word out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's a lack of leadership. And when there are people on the board who uh, don't consider those who express their concerns as pariah, I think we're going to find that there are a lot of people uh, who embrace uh, the same, more conservative uh, ideas. How can people acquire School Boards, A Call to Action, your book that really is a training manual for those who want to run? It is on Amazon. You can uh, Google Dr. Wendy Flint books. I have several books out there um, or school boards, a call to action, but be sure to attach my name to it. There could be some books that are not uh, of the Christian direction. Um, So it is on Amazon, and you can read more about me by just uh, going to wendyflint.com or drwendyflint.com. And I started a website called American School Boards and a Facebook page, American School Boards, because in Oregon in particular, with some other board members, we just want to get a little more organized and start to influence the Oregon School Board Association and get more members uh, elected in Oregon. So if they uh, go to that American School Boards, there'll be a place they can sign up and we'll start to organize. Well, I'd so appreciate, first of all, your commitment to serve as you did in the Evergreen School District and for helping to equip others who want to do the same, whether they feel that they are specifically called or just out of conviction and concern, have decided I'm going to pursue this. This is a great resource, and I would highly recommend anyone who's considering this or if you know someone who is, make sure they have a copy of School Boards, A Call to Action. Dr. Flint, thank you so much for talking with us today. You're welcome. I appreciate this opportunity. The Lord said, Wendy, they're They they called you a right-wing radical, which I know now is just a mild accusation. Back then, today they're calling parents terrorists. You have to help them. And I said, okay, God. And um, I wrote the book again. And And I pray anyone wants to write me an email that's running, I will reply to the email. It's on my website. And I will pray for you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you, Georgine. Again, Dr. Wendy Flint. She's a professor at George Fox. She's the author of School Boards, A Call to Action, an excellent resource. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I mentioned the story earlier, but I wanted to share Douglas Andrews' observations about a what he calls a righteous forfeit. We're talking about a Christian school that decided to forfeit a um, basketball tournament to avoid playing against a boy who professes himself to be a girl. 
Well, in a land where science is sometimes embraced until it's inconvenient, men can have babies. There, too, in the godforsaken land, men can compete against daughters in sports, but not if we stand for normalcy and sanity and, yes, science. Andrews writes, such a principled stand took place in a deep blue Vermont state recently, whereas Valley News reported the mid-Vermont Christian school girls basketball team withdrew from the Vermont Division uh, IV state tournament because of a refusal to play against an opponent with a transgender student athlete. Now, the 12th seeded uh, Eagles were scheduled to play a first round road game last Tuesday against the fifth seeded Long Trail Mountain Lions, but they chose to forfeit rather than take part in the uh, charade, as they put it, of transgender participation in girls sports. Uh, we withdrew from the tournament, said the uh, the head school, uh, Vicki Fogg, because we believe playing against an opponent with a biological male jeopardizes the fairness of the game and the safety of our players. Allowing biological males to participate in women's sports sets a bad precedent for the future of women's sports in general, end quote. Fogg apparently declined to um, request uh, uh, two requests rather for interview. But what's more to say, the statement above says it all or nearly all. It fails to note that only a deeply disturbed society could allow such a thing in the first place. We've written on this topic, again, quoting from Douglas Andrews before, uh, even as the father of girls who competed in club sports and high school athletics, even as one who was spared the ghoulish sight of his daughter's head bouncing off the uh, hardwood with a sickening thud because a young man steamrolled her on his way to the hoop. Who knows whether the decision by mid-Vermont Christian School spared one of its girls some similar fate. Well, this isn't the first uh, controversy to visit Vermont high school athletics. National Review reported back in October of 22 a single schoolgirl soccer coach from Randolph Union High School was suspended after he reportedly misgendered a trans student while defending his daughter, who was uncomfortable with the individual being in the girls' locker room. Um, that same month, administrators at the school banned members of the girls' volleyball team after objecting to sharing it with a biological male student. So the girls and their discomfort, their objection is irrelevant. Indeed, the girls at the Randolph Union volleyball team spoke out last October in a gut-wrenching nine-minute video produced by a journalist, Mary Margaret Olihan. What they describe is the locker room tyranny of the one transgender male student's wishes trumping the collective privacy concerns of all girls. It's an interesting thought. Vermont state law enforces this tyranny. Transgender and gender nonconforming students are to be provided the same opportunities to participate in physical education as our other students. That's fine up to that point. That's according to the Agency of Education's best practices. Then they go on. Generally, students should be permitted to participate in physical education and sports in accordance with the student's gender identity rather than their actual gender or sex. Participation in competitive uh, athletic activities and sports will be resolved on a case-by-case basis. Well, this would seem to indicate that in this case, no one at Long Trail High School objected to allowing a biological male player to compete against the girls of other teams. But what about those other teams? Shouldn't they also have a say in the matter? 
Well, the answer, quite frankly, is no. It's not just these high school and their leftist administrators that are to blame. Beyond them is the NC2A, which is proven to be gutless when it comes to standing up for women's sports and standing up for Title IX's original intent, which was based on the undeniable biological distinction between men and women athletes. So long as those um, who hold to this view continue to deny the science of biology, we have to keep calling them out. Our daughters deserve nothing less. And this is um, going to continue for quite some time. And we'll follow the story as the gender norms, if you will, are being challenged. And other completely different news. Uh, the index, the index of economic freedom reveals how fragile the world's economy has become, even as Taiwan has risen. Well, their economic freedom ranking has risen to an all time high, according to the 2023 Index of Economic Freedom that was released last Monday. The index ranks Taiwan number four with an overall economic freedom score of 80.7 and number two out of the 39 economies in the Asia-Pacific region. The region's average overall economic score is 58.2, while the world's average is 59.3, or the lowest it has been over the past two decades. This year's Index of Economic Freedom reveals just how fragile the world's economy has become. The world and America are at a crossroads. Kevin Roberts, who's president of the Heritage Foundation, says... The index, which began in 1995, considers economic policies and conditions in 184 sovereign countries from the 1st of July 2021 through June of 22 and reveals a world economy that, taken as a whole, is mostly unfree, according to the index executive summary. Too many countries have renounced basic economic principles, leaving communities to suffer the consequences. They must choose either the narrow path of self-governance human dignity and ordered liberty or the broad path of an economic an economy rather run by the managerial elite with no room for dissent or responsibility one path leads to prosperity and the other leads to ruin taiwan's ranking marks an improvement from its number 6 ranking in the 2022 index of economic freedom and that i suppose should be encouraging the 2023 index ranks Singapore number one with an overall economic freedom score of 83.9. The United States ranking holds steady at number 25 with an overall economic freedom score of 70.6, which is its lowest score ever and the third highest ranking in the Americas um, region. The U.S. received a mostly mostly free rating, the same as in 2022, despite dropping 1.5 points from 72.1. For months, the administration has ignored warnings of wasteful spending and poor economic policies, and the American people are the ones paying for it. E.J. Antony, research fellow at the Heritage Center for Data Analysis, says in an email statement, consumers are depleting their savings, which dropped over $1.6 trillion last year, and incurring more credit card debt just to provide for their families. It does not bode well, but the United States is not alone in its fall. We're out of time. I do want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering, and remind you tomorrow we'll be talking with Jason Williams, who is a witness to the revival in, in uh, Kentucky, and we'll also talk with Pastor Greg Allen to try to gain some understanding. What does this mean, revival or awakening? Uh, what should we expect as a consequence? Is it simply a personal uh, event, or is it something that has an outward um, expression as well? That'll be tomorrow on the program, so I hope you'll join us. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.